Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Jerry Lasco from Lasco Enterprises coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my frequent co-host and an audience favorite, Linda Salinas. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Oh, I'm living my best life, Eric Sandler. (laughs) Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. (laughs) Focus. Focus on me. All right. I'm sorry. I'm fired up today. I know. All right. (laughs) We have a lot to discuss, so let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one. Houston will be shining in the National Food Spotlight next month. The James Beard Foundation is coming here to announce the finalists for their very prestigious James Beard Awards. These are the Oscars of the food world. Yeah, they're going to have a press conference March 27th at Hugo's. Mayor Sylvester Turner will be there. The head of the Beard Foundation will be there. That's also the day of the Culture Map Tastemaker Awards, so you know that's going to be a very busy day. For me, Houston, you bougie. It's just a, it's a, well, it's good that that's in the morning and and Tastemakers is at night. So it's going to be a very. Where's the Tastemakers going to be this year? They're going to be at Silver Street Studios. Silver Street Studios. Tickets are on sale. Bun B is back as the MC again for the second year in a row. Nice. Got a whole good lineup of participating restaurants. You can see that at houston.culturemaptastemakers.com. But that's neither here nor there. Do you think there could, there's going to be any upsets in these uh, in these culture? I mean, you I know you you guys love doing your little fan favorites, you know. But I mean, is there any good like upsets? Like, I don't, yes, we'll see. yes, take the crown, queen. We'll see. I don't know. We you know the the best new restaurant is voted on by culture map readers, so that always produces surprising results. Interesting. What? Who are they right now? No, no, we're we're moving on. We're moving on. We're talking Fine. about. We're Fine. talking about the fact that the Beard Foundation is coming to Houston. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Beard, beard, beard. <laughs> Saza, <laughs> squirrel, <laughs> shiny. All right. So, what is this? What do you think this means? I mean, what do you think this means other than Houston first paid the Beard Foundation a substantial amount of money to come and do this? But do you? Do you think that this means, does this say anything about Houston as a culinary city on the rise? Is this another sign that we're in the national spotlight? Yeah, I mean, I I definitely think that um, it creates, I think it's creating a sense of community uh, within Houstonians. You know, Um, I see the same kind of like one or two, three people always over and over and over again you know um which is great it's wonderful um but i mean i think that these sorts of events are are they're a little diplomatic you know um and they're putting a lot of really great talent that is finally starting to work together as opposed to oh here's my one big thing that we do you know right i think i think to the extent that this gets the national media's attention, like the fact that this press conference is happening in Houston instead of New York or Chicago. I think it was in Charleston yeah, uh, last year. You know, to the extent that it just gets the national media sort of thinking about, oh, Houston. Yeah, no, right? absolutely. Because I still feel like, I think we here know how good the dining scene is 
And there are people who have been our advocates, like Bill Addison when he was working for Eater, David Chang more recently, yeah, Brett Anderson in GQ. Like we, you know, we're not without our fans nationally, mm-hmm. but I still feel like if you if you say to a New Yorker like you could come to Houston for the weekend and eat really really well and all these different things, they would still seem surprised by that, even if they're like plugged into the food world. Yeah, I mean, I'd really like to see someone like. Like someone put a little shine on Chacamos. You know what I mean? Sure. Or like Gerardo's. Or, you know what I mean? Like, I just. Right. It's like Irma's won that American Classic Award yeah. years and years ago. Like, maybe it is time for a place like Gerardo's or, or Giacomo's to kind of get that similar recognition. Yeah. It's that those little guys that don't have like a PR monster behind them. You right. Know? I, I mean, what's interesting is there's Kaiser Lashkari. Oh, yeah. From Himalaya is one of the people. He's the only person who has not been at least a semifinalist that is serving food at a dinner the night before that's happening at Caracol, which is already sold out. So I'm not, I don't want to make, but all of the city's beard winners are cooking at that dinner. So that's Chris great. Shepard, Robert Del Grande, Justin Yu, and Hugo Ortega, obviously. It's his restaurant. Kaiser is the only, only not, not a semifinalist. It's like Anita's participating in it, Seth and Terrence from. Passive provisions are participating in it. They've all been semifinalists in the past. That's crazy. So, so now here's the here's the thing. <laughs> There's a gap between. We're recording this podcast on a Monday on a Monday, and it comes out on a Thursday. Easy for me to say. And then on Wednesday, in between those two, the beard semifinalist lists are going to come out. Oh my goodness! You gonna you gonna take the leap with me? Do you think this is? Is this a sign that Kaiser Lashkari is going to be a James Beard semifinalist? I mean, for let's hope best so. Best Chef Southwest. Let's hope so. At least just a just a little nod to the man. Just a little nod, yeah. For the hardest, well, there's a lot of people that work really hard in the restaurant business, but he yeah. works really, really hard. Yeah, he does. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm excited about this. I'm it's uh it's going to make for a, a crazy couple of days for me, but I don't expect anyone to feel sorry for me about that. Oh, look at you eating all the snacks. I know. I bought a ticket to the Caracol dinner. What? I I, I didn't know. I, I, I felt like I had to be there. That's right. And I don't know what the media ticket situation is going to be, and I knew it was going to sell out. Oh, look at you. You're growing up. So, <laughs> if it, so if it winds up that there is media seats, I'll have an extra ticket. Okay. But well, you who know. knows? Yeah. I'm right here, buddy. Yeah, for $250, you can you can have it from me. Oh, my God, so. Yeah. All right. Topic number two. Uh-huh. Starfish has closed. This is part of the Sandbrooks Management Group takeover of the Cherry Pie Hospitality restaurants that they acquired last year. It's going to be closed for about a month, three or four weeks. And when it reopens, it will be called, hold on, 1751 CN Bar. A new seafood restaurant. Sea and bar. Led by Lyle Bento and Chef J.D. Woodward. Mm-hmm. Known affectionately as Nuge. With a... So the 1751 apparently refers to the Gin Act of 1751, an English law designed to curtail drinking. But it in this case, it means they're going to have a lot of gin on the back bar. But they, they did before. I mean... They always have. But, I mean, that's also Lori's, that was Lori's program. Yes. So you're basically taking someone's idea, making it, quote unquote, your own. It's the same shit. 
Well, What's going yeah. on? What's the difference? They're they're just making it a focus. A focus of what? The name of the restaurant. Okay, all right. You do you, boo. Um, Are you? I mean, I had this conversation <sighs> on Houston Matters a couple of months ago. Okay, that there's a lack of like there's there's a lot of Cajun-y seafood in this town. Yeah, there's not a lot of not Cajun seafood. Or, you know, there's like kind of Mexican seafood and Cajun seafood and then, but there's not like Gulf Coast seafood that isn't that. I mean, I, I, first off, we need to take a look at this menu, you know? Right. Like, if you want to come and be like a seafood restaurant or a focused seafood restaurant, like make the definition, you know, define, define your category, define your category. And I just didn't think that you know, starfish was defined by its category. You know, like I literally, we went, I went there twice and it was like steak tartare and white bean dish. Does that sound like seafood at all? Or $3.50, $4. I mean, like for a single oyster, I'm like, okay. It's got to be a pretty fancy oyster if you're going to charge mean, me four bucks. For look, it. I mean, I I I don't I I just want to see I want to see what the menu looks like I want to see what that menu looks like Are we going to see some bomb ass, you know, towers? I mean, they, they're going to do some bomb ass towers, you know. I but I also know that Nuge does beautiful crudos, and I think that will be part of this too. You know, um, I just you know let's just see what you know I, like. Are you optimistic? I am optimistic because I know that 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 they are talented, that they are talented. Um, that that kitchen, the kitchen is very talented, but there's a lot of kitchens that are very talented and it just depends on the ownership and management that allows them to flourish within their own concepts. So I don't know. And I don't know what's been going on with, uh, what they're opening up a Mexican restaurant in old Cane Rosso. That's correct. I want to see how that comes along. Like, come on, come on with it. Well, you know, we saw Lyle Bento at... Nobis recently. Yes. Oh, that was a great party, by the way. Right. Good job, Nobis. And when I talked to Lyle, he said, you know, they've kind of got, they've kind of got the menu for 1751 kind of dialed in. Mm-hmm. And while it's closed, he's going to start the menu development for the new Tex-Mex restaurant that is not, uh, that doesn't have a name yet. Okay. But if I were them, I would, I would figure out some way to leverage that pit room branding. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, the grill room, I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But um, I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I don't have a head for branding, but, but I would figure out some way to leverage that. Um, yeah, and I'm with you. You know, I had dinner at Starfish a couple months ago with Matt Harris, who co hosts the show, and Michael Fulmer, who has co hosted the show. We had a really good meal. I don't remember the specific dishes. There was a tower with some crudos and some other raw stuff that was all pretty impressive. Um, and they were testing out some ideas. I don't know how many of them are going to make the menu. But I left that dinner feeling pretty optimistic. Yeah. And, of course, their operations director, Steve Breaker, worked at Reef for a long time. So he knows something about running yeah. a high-end seafood restaurant. And, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling optimistic. I, I look forward to trying. Let's see. You know, let's just see what, what, you know, this management and owners, actually, if they really, like, hone in on that, on, on that, that, that stuff you know what i mean like um what's the bar gonna look like you know 
Um, is it just, is it Lori's idea, you know, and kind of like melting into this weird thing? Or hopefully, like, they find someone that really, you know, not everyone loves gin. Like, right. You know, not everyone loves gin. So, how is that going to work? Like, Lori, Lori does beautiful drinks, you know, um, that's one of her. It's one of her things, you know? right? And of course, she doesn't work for them anymore. Yeah, so. she doesn't work there anymore. So, but but our good friend Chelsea McGee works there. Oh, Chelsea's a good bartender. Well, we'll just see what happens. Fair enough. All right. Topic number three: Bravery Chef Hall has found its bar star. All right, who is it? Who to be? It's your old friend David Dacker. Ah, David Dacker.y David Cedeno. Yes. Yes. Uh yeah, you you guys you're friends, right? We are. We Tell are. Tell us friends. a little bit about David Cedena. Uh, so David, I met him a few years ago. He'd working. He was working for Lucille's. Actually, I'd, I'd known him before that. Um, but I saw his first kind of like drink development and and cocktails at Lucille's. Obviously, he really wanted to um to grow his own understanding of brands and he eventually uh, worked at prohibition. Um, right. I think that's where I met him was when uh, he was behind the bar at prohibition. You know, I loved that, that bar and I still do like that bar, but I loved how inventive, how inventive and how like absolutely like over the top the drinks were. They were really, I mean, they were just... Like, so what makes a drink over the top? Well, over the top is using several layers of different, not just a one, two, three drink, you know, um, right. like using different spirits. I mean, I think at one one time I went and he's Puerto Rican and he did a really awesome like play on Coquito, which is like uh, kind of like their spiced, cinnamony, coconut like eggnog, you know, mm-hmm. but it's not eggs. So, um, but he did a really awesome play on that and his use of Amaro's and I tried all of the, all of their drinks and I was like, Oh, look at you, boo. You've got it, you know? Um, and so, and I mean, that doesn't come, that doesn't, that doesn't come from me very easily. Right. And he's been someone who's been very active in the local chapter of the U.S. Bartenders Guild. And he has his he's own. He's done a and, bunch of competitions. And he does his own podcast. He does. He does his own podcast. And, um, Have which, you listened to his podcast? No, you know, I don't do that kind of stuff. Um, no, I mean, I just, I, I don't know. I just, you know how I am. No, but he's interested in, in kind of the bartender community. And one of the things that he talked to me about was that he, when he was working at Prohibition, he felt like he was part of a community of bartenders and bar owners downtown. Yeah. And he had been at Brazil for the last year or so, and he kind of missed that. Yeah, no. And he, he wants to be a part of that again, which is why he was drawn to Bravery Chef Fall and, of course, Prohibition's owners or Bravery Chef Fall's owners. So that was appealing to him to, to be back to, in to a back at them, yeah. business relationship with them. Uh, one of the things he said he wants to do is uh, draft cocktail, like things to things to expedite service. So draft cocktails. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that as well. Consolidating spirits and, and all that. Yeah. Um, so from your perspective... Those seem like reasonable things to kind of move the process along because I, there are very few bars, I think, where people are willing to wait five or ten minutes to get their drinks. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's how we opened up LaGrange with, or LaGrange, like, you know, 
was all about speed and you know i mean that's that's become a part of my of my branding as well sure. you know so i like seeing other people embrace the you know be smarter you know not harder right you know and he's calling at lockwood station which is his stop on the metro rail line uh I just think it's clever. I just think it's a good name. No, I think I think um, I think him moving on to uh, being the jefe of a co- just specifically cocktail driven program. I think it's a great idea. I support it. He's um, well qualified. He's well qualified. Um, I think it's I think it's great. All right. Know. And then topic number four. Uh, I feel like I'm just I'm just too happy about all this stuff well all right throw something at me come on <laughs> roadie rotisserie closed who's that so ah uh, good <laughs> this is a sandwich shop that was on westheimer uh kind of in the uh you know fonder and gestner oh boo that's outside the loop get out of here with that business so all right so so here's the thing uh it got some buzz in october I went there, Jeff Balky went there from the Houston Press, Timothy Malcolm went there from Houstonia because it was this independently owned, one-off, young guy doing roasted meats on good bread with like creative toppings. He did a, he did a chicken and a beef and then okay. for a little while he okay. was doing well, a porchetta. Okay, first off, who really cares? Because like I've always said, do you know who your neighbors are? Well, I think so. so, so mm-hmm. on Twitter... Mm-hmm. I was accused mm-hmm. of not giving the place enough attention and that the media was, was contributed to uh, the rise and fall of this restaurant. It only lasted about six months. From, from my perspective, it got great press coverage for having no marketing, a problematic location, and a poor social media presence. Okay, a, a, a poor social media, is that's your problem, buddy, whoever owns that restaurant. Whoever's money went in that because you know that when you have to open up a restaurant, you kind of have like a, I don't know, an idea or a plan of how you're going to like, you know, create traffic for your business. I don't know. Did you take care of the neighborhood? Were you too expensive? What your what were your margins? Did you even did you even take care of those? Like, like did you budget? You know. Right. So here's what I wanted Come to ask on you now. Does media coverage make or break a restaurant? No, it does not. It does not make or break a restaurant. But you better be willing to to manage your own business on your own. Right. Like, if you don't have a website, if you don't have social media content, and people can't get get to know you by your social media or even have some sort of idea of where you're going, people are becoming more and more and more away from calling. People literally just want to be able to like find, find your restaurant, find your hours. What are you doing? Right. I want to be able to look you up on Instagram and see what your food looks like. I want to have your menu online. I want to know what it costs. I want to know where you are. Yeah. I mean, you know, like you, and I don't think that I don't think that that necessarily means much when you're in a neighborhood like when you're in a neighborhood where everyone is you know you're you're basically you're competing with taco trucks and 
and fast food and, and fast food and Chinatown and you know what I mean? Like some of those restaurants, I mean, those some of those like Asian restaurants, like we got I mean, we went to we went to several restaurants the other night. Um like we basically stood in line for twenty minutes for crawfish at an H E B out there. It's that is per that is acceptable in that part of town. Right. You know what I mean? Right. We've talked about this before, right? Where Service and price are related in the sense yeah. that I will accept less service in exchange for paying a lower price. Yeah, you absolutely. can't have you can't have bad service and charge high prices. Yeah, exactly. And so, but, but in Chinatown, you can kind of treat me like crap, and I don't care. Yeah, much. and it's fine, right? You know, but like, I don't know what this fancy sandwich place is like. Did you know your neighborhood? Did you, what was your target demographic? Like, who were the people that you were like, did you have like a, a lunch crowd? Where did that lunch crowd come up, come from? Who are you fighting against? Like, those are things that you have to like, you know, someone like Justin Yu has a restaurant, you know, in the middle of downtown. But guess what? It's in the middle of down in like a little kind of shady little part of downtown. And it's tiny and it's got small seats. You know, so it's, you know, like... He can do those things, you know. Right. If he opened up a 250 seat place, that would be a nightmare. You know what I mean? And like trying to fill those seats and, you know, I mean, I don't know. Like it doesn't it, it isn't going to make or break you, but it definitely helps you. And Sure. Like sure. You, so so from my perspective, right? It had been open for a couple of months when all of this media coverage sort of descended on it in the span of like 2 weeks in October. Yeah. I had a friend of mine who's not in the restaurant business ask me recently, like, like if you, if I opened a restaurant and you wrote about it, would you make it busy? And it's no. like, all I can do is give you a push. Yeah. Right. I mean, all the- I can do is like, and then, and then what has to happen is you have to, you have to take advantage. And some of it's just like, some of it's luck, right? Like it, like the, the push the push for a restaurant in Montrose of the Heights, where a lot of culture map readers are, is stronger than the push for a restaurant outside the loop. Outside the loop on Westheimer. Yeah. I mean, and, and not only that, but like I've seen top one hundred restaurants for Allison Cook drop off that drop off that hundred oh. list or whatever, and then they close. Right. Or Maba Pan Asian Diner that was in you know, yeah. that she had ranked number eleven closed like a week before the list came out. Yeah. So I mean you can't you know, it's tricky. Right. So she's got a bigger audience than I do. I don't think I'm no, no surprise there. Yeah. But yeah, we, we only have so much. We only have. I guess my point is we only have so much push. Yeah. No, I mean, like I always say, you know, where's your where are your people coming from? Right. You, you, know? you have to have the rest of the business in hand. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm it really like I don't mean to sound so callous because I know that that was probably someone's like finances and family and right. so on and so forth and you know that those things are really hard but like right. so so here's what I would like to see happen to Roti Rotisserie I'm just putting this out in the universe I have no I don't have contact with the owner I don't have contact but it would make so much sense in a food hall it yeah. would crush in a food hall because then he wouldn't have to worry about a location and traffic he could focus on the food People would come to him. That's that's my that's my wish. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of people that are looking for good food and like 
Right, that Palton Road that's coming to Rice Village. Put that sandwich shop like right in the middle of that. Or like at the bottom of like an Exxon Mobil building. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or Right, or or here in the Culture Map building. Yeah, I mean, anything, you know. We've been bereft since our subway closed. (laughs) Ugh, that sounds like terrible. It's terrible. All right. Anyways. That does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? So, Linda, for our restaurants of the week, uh, crawfish season is here. Yes! <laughs> so, let's just, I, I just want to talk about a couple of places. Um, I, I, I had crawfish uh, two days in a row. I have, I have plans to eat more crawfish in the coming days. You're a monster. I know you've been out there <laughs> eating crawfish. Yeah, I ate crawfish at three places in one night. All right. Where were the three places that you ate crawfish in one night? Uh, so for lunch, I went to Saigon House. Okay, in Midtown, your Mid- your personal favorite, one is, of your favorites. That is one of my personal favorites. Like, great order, counter service, shut up, sit down, drink your beer, crush. You know. What do you get? Um, so they have three different, um. Asian right via Cajun, yeah. via Cajun, and I like the. It's called the H Town Bang, I think, and it's like tons of garlic, tons of like peppers and and like chilies and big chunks of zest. You know, it's just, uh, and it's covered in butter. It is outstanding. It's like fat kids' dream. All um, right. All right, so, stop number two. Stop number two was the Boyle. It, oh, yeah, the Boyle House in the Heights? No, 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 no. It wasn't Boyle House. But uh, By the way, I've heard oh, really, oh. really. You went, to the, you went to the thing at the new at the HEB, H-E-B. in Chinatown. It was Basuritas. means little trashes. <laughs> um, why, why wasn't it good? Um, well, the, the seasoning was on the outside. Oh, which okay, is more not in the cage. water. Yeah. yeah, it was more kind of more Cajun-y. Um, they did add a little bit of like stuff in it, but the crawfish we just were like steam cooked, like e- like oh, okay. like they it, also we just do overcooked. fried seafood. Did you try any of that? I did. And um, their all of their sauces were like like in a packet. In a packet. Yeah. Basurita. Okay. All right, and then you went to crawfish and noodles. Oh, and then I also had snow crab, which is snow crab was like salted to all get up, and I love salt. It was just like, I was just like, I don't know, it was like, like boiled yeah, think, hot dogs. I think so they call it. I think they call it Texas Boil House. This is at the. This is at the H E B. I think it's at Bissonette in the Beltway. Yeah, it is. It's at Bissonette Beltway. We had to wait in line. Um, you, they literally have four tables in the parking lot with a little tent on the outside it was just kind of like whatever i mean honestly it was a nice day sunday yeah i was just like we went we went out there we had a couple of pounds i would not order anything other than maybe a little bit of crawfish before you have to wait for a reservation somewhere else i mean honestly okay that's what i would do and then you went to crawfish and noodles and then we went to crawfish and noodles and it was bananas bananas like full dining room how long full... did you have to wait for a table uh, well you know we know a couple people there. oh i see okay uh so the wait was 50 minutes for normal people. And we just happened to walk in at the right time. You know. it's, good. it's good to be people who know people. Yeah. Um, How was the food? 
the food was outstanding. Like one of our friends was poor, covered in sweat, like just covered in sweat, just so spicy, so wonderfully spicy. All right. So here's the only thing is I, another friend of mine went to crawfish and noodle and told me it's $13 a pound right now for crawfish. Yo, so expensive. And the minimum, the minimum for you to sit at one of their tables, you have to order five pounds. Okay, so I'm going to do the math in my head. That's $65. Cray, cray. Is that, is $13 a pound too much? For, That's too much. Even the best crawfish, is that too no, much? No, it's too much. It's too much. Like, we went, and it was good, but it's not $13 good. And they're just like, praise emoji for them. They're just like raking in the, the dollars. Yeah, they've gotten all kinds of love. They've gotten so much love, but I just think that like, I don't know, man. It's like so. Where would you go for via Cajun crawfish? Saigon House is there? Do you have a Chinatown spot? That's uh, I like L.A. sometimes, uh, but you know what? In all honesty, I've got a. I'm just. I think I'm going to go back to like my old standbys, like um, Wild Cajun or yeah. Hanks or this little janky right. little place on Willcrest. Let like, me ask you: Have you been to Captain T Seafood? No, I've heard good things. I have. Uh, I am going there this week. I have also heard good things. Oh well, well how about your girl? <laughs> All right. Uh, so I heard good things. So I went to La Lucha for their crawfish. They've started doing that on the weekends. Uh, Chef Bobby Matos is working. He, Josh Martinez, who is now a manager at State of Grace, helped him kind of get the boil recipe down. And how was it? It was very good. It was it was the first batch of the day, so not super spicy, mm -hmm. but like like flavorful and well cooked. Mm -hmm. um, crawfish were a little bit small. I guess that's par for the course at this time and yeah. at this yeah. time of the year. But you know, I I mean, flavorful and well cooked, and I was happy about it. Eight bucks a pound, not crazy. Uh, and then I also, and then the next day, I went to Bayou City Seafood and Pasta, hmm. the Galleria area institution. And they were packed. They were on a wait on a Sunday night at six o'clock, uh, full dining room, and they were knocking out classic Cajun style crawfish. Again, eight bucks a pound. That's great. It's great. Yeah. No, I had a good time. So when I talked to Josh, Josh recommended Captain T. Okay. So that is that apparently is the new hotspot in Chinatown. I mean, Definitely, I want to check out Captain T's. I heard Boyle House is crushing it. Yeah, Boyle House in the Heights. I hear and a lot of good things. they have great beer. You don't have to drink garbage. And I still like the boot on 20th Street. Oh, yeah, the boot. The boot. Yeah, I've heard BB's. Great. Yeah. BB's does a good job. BB's, is they're, they need to get it together with that service. I am so tired of those mother effers. I just really, I just make me so mad. I'm like... Yo, you're making so much money. Take care of your people. Get like, I'm dying here. I need water. Can I get some? I will say, napkins? I will say that was the only thing about Bayou City was like the the refills and the the checking, and they were they were running really hard. Yeah. So I mean, it took a minute for some of that stuff, but I just food was really good. I mean, it's sometimes uh, I'm like, come on, y'all. Mom wanted crawfish. We went out for crawfish. Well, Mom you know what? Me. I mean, thank goodness crawfish season has opened up. Yeah, it's back. Please send us recommendations. 
Yeah, you can email me, Eric, E-R-I-C, at culturemap.com, and we will discuss uh, listener recommendations on the next show. Yeah, let's do this. All right. Um, Linda, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, bud. All right, I'll be right back with Jerry Lasko. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? Joined this week by Jerry Lasko, the CEO of Lasko Enterprises, the founder, certainly, the company behind Max's Wine Dive, the Tasting Room, a couple other restaurant concepts around town. Jerry, welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks, Eric. I'm great. It's good to be here. Thanks for doing this. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. I always like to start at the beginning with these interviews. So tell me how you got into the restaurant business. Yeah. Yeah. That's a strange story. Um, let me think. Well, I was a Air Force guy. I was a pilot in the Air Force for 14 years. Then I got out and I flew for Continental. So I felt like that really prepared me to get into the restaurant. No, actually what happened is I had just gotten back from a trip. My wife and I had just moved here from New York to Houston because it was the headquarters for Continental at the time. And I, I, we were ready to start a family and we thought we've been doing enough moving around. So let's, let's move somewhere for good. And it was, I landed for my trip on September 11th or September 10th. It's my first one based out of Houston. And then on September 11th, I'm sitting in my pajamas watching TV and the uh, World Trade Centers came down and the life in the airlines really changed drastically. So within a couple of weeks, they announced that, you know, 25% of the company was going to get furloughed and whatnot. And I was on that list. So I knew that I had two or three years before I was going to go back to my profession. I had to figure out something to do. And I did a lot of brainstorming. I, unfortunately, I wasn't qualified to do a whole lot. I had, I had been, I can fly- relate. I feel the same way. Yeah. You know, all my life I had been flying and, you know, I was a, kind of an engineer studies and, in school, but I, I certainly wasn't ready to, to go be an engineer anywhere. So I was passionate about food and wine. Living in New York, I went to culinary school just as a hobby. And I, you know, got my sommelier certification, again, just as a hobby, because I thought it was a cool thing to do. And, you know, my wife and I talked about it. And we figured if we had to start a business, we might as well do something that we loved. So we started thinking about it. And I got a job working at the Houston Wine Merchant, uh, just selling wine on the floor, trying to learn a little bit about business. And that, that was a great opportunity. Came up with an idea and started the tasting room. So when did you open the first? So the first location of the tasting room opened in Uptown Park. Is that? That's correct. It, it was a miniature version of what it is today. It was maybe a thousand square feet. Right there. Right. With a focus, um, I, I mean, a real focus on wine retail, right? In addition to having some food and like a happy hour thing. Yeah, that's right. We thought of it as a hybrid. In fact, it was a wine retail place where you can come have a glass of it or a sip of it before you buy it to take home. Uh, it's changed a lot. <laughs> yes. Um, it's like, first of all, you're, you're in 
you must be in like five or six thousand square feet now in in uptown park. Yeah, it's more like ten thousand. Holy crap! Okay, sometimes I wish it was five or six thousand. But. <laughs> but anyway, but so but it, the concept took off. You opened uh, several additional locations, um, and then right now you're in you're in uptown park and you're in city center. That's correct with the tasting room. So how would you so how would you describe kind of what the tasting room is now? Well, I think now what it is, it's still a place where you can come, you can try anything. We have a, uh, we call it the tasty room and we, we try to make that a literal experience. So uh, at both of our tasty rooms right now, we also have beer, great beer selection with a lot of, uh, you know, homegrown stuff and boutique beers, you know, whether it's homegrown in Texas or it's, you know, boutique from some other place around the world. We also have uh, liquors, great selection of bourbons and whiskeys and scotches. But I guess our primary focus, what people know us for, is still wine. So you can come in there and say, hey, you know, I sometimes like uh, Chardonnay, sometimes I don't. You know, what's the deal? How, how, how do I know which one I'm going to like? And we might set two glasses down right next to you and, and say, well, try them both and then we'll talk. And you say, yeah, I really like this one. What's the difference between this one and that one? Say, so, well, this one's aged in stainless steel. It doesn't see any oak. And then the light bulb clicks and you say, oh, it's that oak that, that I don't like or vice versa. Right. I, I love that moment in any wine bar where you're drinking whatever varietal, Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Noir, whatever. And you go, okay, I like this, but I want to try something that's, you know, less fruity, more fruity, sweeter, drier. And then the, the bartender, the sommelier goes, oh, try this. Right. And it's exactly, you didn't even know it existed, but it was exactly what you wanted. Yeah, that's a that's that moment when the bells go off. And I, I've said this for a long time, but there's really only one important thing that everybody that, that drinks needs to know about wine or whatever you drink. And that's what you like. And then if there's a second most important thing, it's how to describe that to somebody else when you're ordering it. Right. That, right. That, because I, I feel like I have so much to learn about wine and, you know, I, I can say I like sort of tart, acidic, food friendly wines, but you know, much beyond that, like I don't, I don't always feel like I have the vocabulary and I've tried these like wine tasting events where it's like smell it and you're like, okay, I get like apple and pear and, and whatever. And then you're like, you drink it. You're like, what does it taste like? Well, it tastes like wine. <laughs> so, so how, so what's that been like? So, so how do you kind of walk people through that to get them to the point where they can tell you what they want? Cause I think that's the hardest part. Yeah, well, it's a matter of degree. So the first thing I'd say is you're in a pretty good place right now with the uh, tart and the acidic. Um, a lot of people who really know food well, it turns out they, they know a lot more about what what they want to consume and, and everything else. So that, that tart and acidic is extremely important with wine. Uh, because once you tell me that, or you tell any sommelier that, we've we're ninety five percent of the way there for you. So that's the key. There's soft and round and easy drinking wines, 
And those are, I think, more for, well, I don't want to get exclusionary here, but a, a lot of times it's for the, that individual that's having an aperitif or ha- just having a cocktail. That wine's a substitute for a cocktail, and they might not be eating, and they, do, they want something smooth and easy going down. But when you're pairing it with food, that acidity really is, is the same reason why we tend to like margaritas when we're eating you know, Mexican food just makes the food taste better. They both complement. Right. So, right. The food program, obviously at, at the tasting room has evolved over the years. Um, you know, I guess in the beginning it was like meat and cheese plates, right? And that That's right. Stuff. So where are you at? Right. I, I know it's much more sophisticated now. You still doing the seafood towers and all that stuff? Yeah. We've got a great raw bar at, at both of our locations. We do a lot of antiposses. I think the challenge for us is when you have, you know, when you, you've got up to a thousand people sitting in various places, some are outside, some are inside, some are in events, and, and nobody thinks of you necessarily as a sit-down restaurant where you come and you order, you know, I'm going to start off with the pear and gorgonzola salad and, you know, a, a bowl of soup, and then my next course would be this and my entree and, and whatnot. That's typically not why people come to the tasting room. People come to the tasting room for a multitude of different reasons. It might just be sitting down and catching a glass of whatever with a friend, or it might be, hey, you've got five or six people sitting at your table and you start drinking and then you want to eat. So we try to make food that is friendly and accessible and easy to order at whatever stage you want with very little commitment. You can get out of, in and out of there in 30 minutes or you could spend three hours there. Um, but we've got a really talented chef right now that, that's that's running them, or great chefs at both locations, actually, and wood-burning pizza ovens. We try to, I'd say if there's a theme, it's Mediterranean, but very fresh, Getting things out of the sea, we've got a great cold water oyster selection, and um, just just good foods. Obviously, pizzas and bruschettas, right? Um, and then you you expanded with Max's Wine Dive. I'm gonna say what, like 2008, nine? Is that is that about right? 2006. Wow. Okay. Because you were like really early on the kind of elevated comfort food thing that that became like such a big trend and, and now we sort of take for granted but but the idea of taking like a really great burger and really good fried chicken and charging like a slight premium for it and pairing it with a huge selection of wine i mean i don't remember very many people doing that before you did it so where what was the inspiration for that it was a great question and i'll give you an honest answer a uh, place called blue ribbon in, in new york city in soho so uh Max's Wine Dive was a, a product of, of two concepts, and they were both completely different. One of them was a dive bar on, on the Upper West Side that was right across the street from where we lived, and unfortunately, it's no longer there. It was called Yogi's, and Yogi's was a type of bar. You, you call it a shotgun bar because if the bartender pulled out a shotgun, he'd, he'd take out everybody down the bar. It was, it was narrow. So you go in there, and they had a jukebox, and everybody knew all the songs on the jukebox. It's just kind of classic Americana from Johnny Cash to, um, I don't know, classic rock and roll, ZZ Top. Right. Um, that's, a good, that's a good Houston reference for that. That's yeah, funny. there you go. Uh, 
But anyways, buckets of Pabst Blue Ribbon beer and baskets of peanuts. And that's all they had, but great atmosphere, and we loved going there. And then on the other end of the spectrum, uh, the Bromberg brothers down in Soho were doing something that I thought was really cool. They were serving food that foodies, well, maybe foodies is the wrong word, chefs and the culinary folks were really into not because it was necessarily popular or proper at the time, but because it just tasted damn good. Things like fried chicken, bone marrow, oysters, uh, really simple preparations, but great product. And after two or three years with the tasting room here, you you start thinking, okay, this is fun, and you get hooked on it. Think, all right, now I want to go out there and I want to open a proper restaurant. The tasting room is a wine bar, and that whole wine bar thing is going well. We're expanding. You know, we got a pizza oven, we're doing some other things, but I really want to delve into the restaurant theme. But I also always kept in mind I want to do something that's already been doing well. So you have your special occasion restaurants like, you know, Tony's and and whatnot that, that people would go to and, uh, when it's your birthday or it's fine dining. I said, I want to do the opposite of fine dining, but with really good food, no pretension. Uh, we came up with the name Wine Dive because we thought of that juxtaposition. You got to dive and you got wine, and nobody ever puts the two of those together. You have fried chicken, you have champagne, but nobody ever thinks of those together. So we had a lot of fun with it. Right. I mean, talk about uh, an aesthetic, food-friendly wine. I mean, it yeah. turns out champagne really goes with everything. That's right. That's right. We, we, you know, people thought, hey, that's really creative. But in the, in the reality, it just works easily. Um, and then, you know, you've, you've kind of added locations and subtracted locations. And, and I mean, what's that process been like? Because it's, it's so rare for a Houston restaurant to try to go outside of the city. Right. We, we just don't we just don't see that very often. And you took Max's to Denver and Chicago and Kansas City, I think. Atlanta. Right. And, and all over Texas. Yep. Dallas and Austin. And um, what was that like? I mean, I, I, I don't have a more sophisticated question than that, I guess. No, it, it was crazy. <laughs> it still is crazy. It, it, a roller coaster ride. So, you know, we were, we were really fortunate and are really fortunate. And I think. You know, our concepts were successful pretty much from the start. So the tasting room, you know, we, we worked hard and, you know, I think we, we, we put the time and the effort into it. But people wanted the tasting room to work, so it worked. And I think we treated people well and people treated us well and it was able to grow. And then when we opened up Max's Wine Dive... I remember telling somebody this is either going to be a a hit or it's going to be an absolute failure. And and unfortunately, I don't know. I I have no idea. It's it's a flip of a coin. I like the idea, but will anybody else like the idea of having this dive bar concept with upscale food? It's dark. It's loud. I mean, it's super like I like Max's. I don't I don't probably eat there as often as I'd like to, but but it's super fun. So I think that was the risk. And when we opened it, we were fortunate because we got, we got the right one. People liked it. And 
Um, it got, I, I guess sometimes you don't know why it's going to happen, but you get that, you know, that cult following and we did and it blew up and, you know, lines out the door and you couldn't. So what do you do when you, when you have that type of success, you start thinking about expanding and you do this. And we opened up about our first five maxes and, you know, they were unstoppable then we stretched ourselves a little bit, you know, probably, you know, everybody tells you you're going to do this. They say, hey, you know, it's going to be difficult when you get outside the state. It's going to be really difficult and everything. But but you have to find out for yourself. And uh, right now we've got one that's outside of Texas and that's in Denver. And, um, you know, knock on wood, that one's doing great right now. <laughs> so um, but ups and downs. Right. So two in Houston and, and one in Denver. Are there are there still others? I. Yeah, yeah. So we have a 10-plus-year-old location in Austin, Texas. It's doing great. We've got one in San Antonio that's fantastic. Um, do you still aspire to open more of them, or do you feel like you're kind of where you're supposed to be? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, the restaurant industry has changed, and I'm sure you, you watch it change all the time. Uh, so it's tricky. We're, we're trying to figure that out. You know, obviously, it's no fun shutting restaurants down. And, you know, you hope, uh, you know, we've been doing this for 16 years now. You hope that you learn some lessons along the way. And most of the time, the lessons you learn are from mistakes you made. You know, if you're successful all the time, you know, you probably wouldn't learn anything because you either knew it all right in the beginning or you're just lucky and you, you don't know what you know. So I don't know, Eric. We'll see. Yeah, that's always I. I always feel like that's um, it's a fine line for restaurateurs. It's like you you open something and it's it's a hit, and it's it's really hard to tell, in at least in the beginning. Like, did you did you catch lightning in a bottle because it's the right concept in the right place at the right time, or are you or have you really like you know, or is it like Shake Shack where you you put things together in a way where it's just like, you know, you just have to straddle the rocket and and hang on for dear life. Yeah. I I wish I knew the answer to that. Uh, Part of its price point, it's a lot easier to scale something that has a lower price point. And unfortunately the product mix that, that we want, that we think is fits what we're talking about at Max's is this, it's this comfort food or it's food that you grew up with, you know, things that you had with hungry man TV dinners and, and whatnot. But the concept is to take all the best ingredients. So if you're having meatloaf, you know, it's to get the best mushrooms on that meatloaf and a, you know, a Cabernet reduction sauce that goes with that uh, plenty of butter. And, you know, it's 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 pork from, you, you know, th- this source or, or beef from this source ranch and all that kind of stuff. So. Right, then you have a $25 meatloaf. You, and you do. Like, and, which, and that doesn't scream chain restaurant. Right. Um, well, so you have tried the kind of lower price point, fast casual thing. I mean, you, you're you a partner in Sing, the uh, counter-service Singapore-inspired restaurant that just opened up in the Heights. Um, how's that going? Well, it's going great. It's um, like everything else is always more work than we thought it would be. And, you know, that's one where we want, we've gone into it from the very beginning with the thought of scaling it. So Sing is a model that, you know, 
right from day one from planning, it was we want to create something that we can make efficient and work in what we call the next generation of restaurants. So I, I, I've been thinking about this for probably five years, and each year I get more and more resolute that, that the industry's changing. In order to be successful in the industry today, you had to be thinking about things that I wasn't necessarily thinking about 16 years ago, and that's better marketing, that's a smaller footprint, that's a better, more efficient labor model. So we, we created all of these. It's greener. It's a smaller, you know, all of these things. Right. I mean, 16 yeah. years ago, there wasn't Uber Eats, right? Or DoorDash. Right. So, right. you know, people want to, people want restaurant quality food delivered to their door. Right. Right. And so Sing is, uh, one of the things Sing is designed to do is take advantage of that. Absolutely. We want to feed a lot more people outside of our four walls than, than we do inside of our four walls. Uh, and you started that business with Cook Lamb as kind of your chef partner in that. And, and I know she helped develop the menu. Um, she left, uh, what, about a month or two ago. Yeah. Um, what's it been like without her? I mean, do you, do you still feel like the concept is, is kind of where you wanted it to be? Well, that's, I'll, I'll break that into two questions, literally, in, in the order that you answered it. What's it like without her? Well, I think the transition, there, there's been challenges with the transition. Cook was a, a big force and, and a big part of our opening and a big personality. I think that's, that's probably most of it. Uh, you know, her fans and people that came in, you know, loved her and loved her bubbly personality. Right. And, and you know, I, it, it's hard to replace somebody that is a personality that's in the business. I, I'm, not actually replaces the wrong word for that because I don't think you do. You, you know, you find someone else or you find a team that provides a great service and whatnot. So that's challenging from the business standpoint. You know, obviously there's a business to run and, you know, you move on and, and it, like in all relationships, it's, it's, it's generally not easy when you part ways, but, um, doesn't mean that either side is wrong or either side is, is a bad person. But nonetheless, both sides have to get on with their lives and both sides have to. So we're just focused on making the product as consistent as we possibly can. The service is as good and consistent as we possibly can. And that's a lot of work. So, you know, we're, we're, we're busy. Right. But you still believe in the concept. You still want to grow it. Oh, Absolutely as much or more than ever. And I see a lot of opportunities and there's a lot of opportunities for us to improve. And there's a lot of promises that, you know, we have in our business plan and our business model. I call them promises because it's what the business model is based on. We are going to deliver this. We're going to deliver that. And, and I don't mean delivery literally. I mean, this service. Right. We're going to provide element. this to our customers. And, and, you know, we're still not there. So, you know, we've got to develop that and we've got to get that down and consistent and repeatable, which is a lot more challenging than, you know, I, I, it, I, I've opened 20 different concepts. So it's, or, or 20 different locations. So you would think I'd have this down more, but it almost feels like it's the first time every time you're doing it. Yeah. Um, 
think the other thing about sort of the tasting room and Max's is you have like a you have like a really incredible family tree of culinary talent that has come through that place. I mean, yeah. you know, Jonathan Jones and Michael Pellegrino and more recently uh, Brandy Key and Eric Hastings. I mean, what when do you sort of decide like you want to bring someone in and then and then how do you sort of absorb what they have to teach you and then and then keep that going, keep that momentum going when they when they move on to whatever their next project is. Yeah, a, a great point and question. I think that if you took a poll of restaurateurs that have been in it in the business, you know, a couple decades or or for a while, uh, probably say that the ch- most challenging thing is is the human element to it, the the people. And that's something that uh, that people are the key. You know, really is. You know, unless you're an absolute magician with the food, and you're you're doing really culinary, high caliber culinary focus, just intensity. You 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 end up having to surround yourself with people that that orchestrate it, you know, sometimes you feel like you're the conductor, but you're not playing any instrument. So you might be the least valuable, you know, element to, to somebody's ear out there because no, nobody can hear what you're doing. So the people are, are critical, but it's also the most challenging. You know, so we try to bring in great, great individuals and, and, and very talented folks. And we've had uh, you know, I'd guess in Houston alone, it's over 10,000 people over the, the the last 10, 15 years that have worked with us. And they've all left, you know, some sort of lesson one, one way or the other. And um, for the most part, it's been really positive, but it but it is challenging. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's always, you know, from an outside perspective, there's always that like, oh, you know, like, like most recently, like Brandy and Eric kind of yeah. signed on and then left pretty quickly um do you i mean do you just kind of you just kind of filter that out at this point i mean you just kind of weather those those comings and goings no (laughs) (laughs) uh no we don't filter it out because it's it's challenging and it it hurts it's painful because you you create connections with people and personal connections and you know everyone you've mentioned so far I've felt a, a, a personal connection with. They're, they're great people, and you know you, you develop a, a liking and even a, a love for them. So it's impossible to filter it out, and you know it's probably not good radio. But you know there's tears involved, and there's you know there's pain. But from a business standpoint, you know you ultimately, if the relationship isn't going in the same direction. Uh, for both people's long-term benefit or both sides benefit, you know, you have to move on. So what are you looking forward to in the next say year or two for both Max's and the tasting room and sing? Like what are, what are you, what are you excited about? Yeah, I'm excited to continue growing. And, and I mean that literally, literally and figuratively, we've got a great leadership team in place right now. And, you know, I just, Sat through a PNL meeting this morning, which are are typically uh, could be frustrating and, and and challenging or or boring or or whatever it is because you're focused on numbers. And the thing that I 
took away from that meeting, and it's it's been this way for several times in a row, is just how well our leaders, our our our, man, our chefs, and our general managers at all of our locations are doing right now. You know, I've always said this: when you have multiple locations, it's like keeping plates spinning in the air. And you know, if you've got eight plates spinning, there's always seem to be two or three that are crashing as you're trying to keep the others spinning. But right now we've, we've been doing a good job of keeping them all spinning and, and we got great people in place. If you have great people in place, I'm an idea guy. So I can come up with ideas all day long and I've, I've got a million things that I'd like to do. So as long as, you know, we've got the, the, the right people and, and we've got the systems in place makes me happy. Yeah. That's, it's always a funny thing. Uh, Grant Cooper always talks about that. He's like, I've got, I've got 10 ideas that are 75%. And when you find me the right real estate and the right people to make it happen, I could take any of them from 75 to a hundred in like six months. Yeah. So I guess you're, you're kind of in the same boat, right? You've got, yeah. you've got a lot going on and, and you could grow or not grow depending on when you get the, the right people and the right opportunity. Yeah. I'll go with that. <laughs> Well, Jerry, I have to tell you that that brings me to the end of my questions, unless you have something else you would like to discuss. No, I, I just say I appreciate you doing this. It, it, it's cool for, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts and I always really enjoy them and I, I like the in-depth questioning. All right. Well, then you know that this ends with the lightning round, five easy questions, five short answers. Okay. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Jerry Lasko, what is your favorite cookbook? Um, Uchi cookbook. Nice. Uh, what's the first band you ever saw in concert? Kiss. What is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru. Restaurant with a drive-thru. It's got to be burger. Who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Past or present, Akeem Olajuwon. Very nice. And what is your go-to pizza order? Unfortunately, gluten-free, which I can't find uh, good ones too many places, so I get it at the tasting room with uh, spicy pepperoni. Uh, give us the website and, and all the info for uh, the tasting room and Max's Wine Dive. Yeah, tastingroomwines.com, maxswinedive.com, and cravesing.com. Awesome. And Boiler House in San Antonio. Top restaurant in San Antonio. Absolutely. In the, uh, in the beautiful Pearl Complex. That's right. All right. Well, thanks for doing this. Likewise. Thank you. All right. You can follow me on Twitter at eSandler, on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.